Welcome to Backstage at Upstage, a presentation of Upstage Lung Cancer, which uses the performing arts to raise awareness and funding for lung cancer research. Here's your host, the founder and president of Upstage Lung Cancer, Hilde Grossman. Hi, I'm Hilde Grossman, and we're so excited to have you with us today backstage at Upstage. And here's my good pal, Jordan Rich. Hilde, this podcast today features important information, information that can save lives. We're going to be talking about screening for lung cancer with two medical personnel at the forefront, Drs. Andrea McKee and Jacob Sands. I know the listeners are really going to benefit from this conversation, so take it away. Great. I am delighted today to welcome our terrific guests, Andrea McKee and Jacob Sands, dear friends and smart and wonderful doctors who will have such great things to say about evaluating or finding or diagnosing lung cancer early through scans. One of the things I was thinking about was when I was in graduate school um, a while back, there was this question that came up and it was about Huntington's Korea, which doesn't sound like it has anything to do with this, but the point was, if you had um, history of Huntington's Korea in your family, would you, and there was a test to find out, would you want to know? And it was a very interesting discussion that followed. And that was all about whether people want to know um, if they're going to get a disease or if they have a disease. And some people will say, absolutely, I want to know immediately. Some people will say, I'd rather not know. Don't don't tell me. And if it happens, then I'll deal with it at some other time. So um, I think it's relevant to this conversation about CT scans for um, lung cancer. At Backstage and Upstage, we've done a couple of other broadcasts and podcasts about CT scans, but I think we have our two guests will have additional perspectives to add today. So I'd like to ask you, Andrea, maybe we could start with you to talk a little bit about you, you've created an organization called Rescue Lung, Rescue Life. Could you tell us um, something more about that organization and what brought you to uh, create such, a, such an organization? Yeah, absolutely. Well, actually, it, it started with a movement when I was uh, chairperson at Leahy, um, then Leahy Clinic. Now it's Beth Israel Leahy Health. Um, but I was the chairperson of radiation oncology when the National Lung Screening Trial was halted by the NCI due to the, at that time, 20% mortality benefit seen when a CT scan of the chest was done instead of a chest X-ray. So th this was really huge to see such um, incredible life-saving potential that the NCI saw fit to halt the study and contact anyone who was in the chest X-ray arm and, and alert them to the fact that they should have a low dose CT of the chest if they want to find early stage lung cancer. And so to me, it was, it was just a game changer. I, I, I mean, I, I'm a radiation oncologist. I've been treating lung cancer at that time for um, decades. This was 2010. And um, I had been treating a late stage lung cancer primarily because that was what was being diagnosed in the absence of screening. And so I would see patients and their families when the patient was diagnosed with brain metastases or when they had a painful 
tumor in the spine that had started in the lung but spread. And it was so frustrating for me to be treating late stage disease when all of a sudden I realized we could be finding early stage disease because with screening, at least in the Leahy program, 85% of the time we find stage one or two lung cancer, which is just mind altering, honestly, when you've been treating late stage disease for so long. And so I immediately decided we needed to do something. We needed to translate those results from that trial into clinical practice. And so we built a team and uh, my late husband, Brady McKee, he was the chair, he was the um, division chief of thoracic imaging at the time at Leahy. So the two of us kind of worked together um, to build a multidisciplinary team to basically approach the head of our organization and say, hey, we, we really feel, all of us together feel this has to happen. Because at the time, there was no payment for the exam. You, you, If you were at risk for lung cancer, you couldn't just go in and have this exam because there was no uh, fee schedule. Anything that we do in medicine you know, requires a, a, a code and, and reimbursement in order for it to actually get done. That's just the way it works in the United States. And it actually five years to establish that reimbursement, during which time we, um, we screened patients who are at high risk for free. So as a community benefit, if you were eligible for screening, um, then you could come in and have the exam for free. So as part of getting our organization to agree to such a um, initiative, bold initiative, because that sort of thing doesn't just happen every day, we were really just, we were so passionate about getting this done that we created a movement. And part of that movement was training other centers to do to offer screening for free. It was to help deal with the prejudice associated with smoking and tobacco use. And it was to help the establish reimbursement by working with CMS or the government to create the codes that would allow this to become a standard of practice throughout the country. So that was the Rescue Lung, Rescue Life movement. And the program at Leahy was called Rescue Lung, Rescue Life. And we thought a lot about naming it such because we believed, which had been proven in that study, that if you could rescue the lung from lung cancer, you could rescue the life. And we also wanted to create a sense of urgency around saving lives due to lung cancer deaths by drawing parallels to rescue missions like firefighters and people who are on the front line of of saving lives. So um, we did a lot of work with firefighters and veterans and military groups who are at higher risk for developing lung cancer as well, and uh, really aligning our efforts uh, through the Rescue Lung Rescue Life program. Later, we, along with Jacob, was a big part of this. He was at Leahy at the time, and I'll let him speak to it. But we later decided that um, we needed to create a non-for-profit that would continue the work of advocating for this high-risk population and offering screening to the highest quality possible. And so we created the Rescue Lung um, Society, which is a physician-led multidisciplinary society that educates around the world um, people, healthcare professionals mainly, on how to do quality screening. So that was a long-winded answer, but I kind of had to give the background. And no, see if- it was the important answer. It was the important <laughs> answer. Thank you. Um, so, so how did you, you know, how did you get a hospital to agree to pay for this program? It seems like a Herculean task. It, it really was. And it took a, a huge team effort. And this is, you know, to the credit of the individuals who were all part of this team, we, we just, uh, 
weren't going to take no for an answer. Um, we knew we had the data on our side. We knew what was the right thing to do. And we, um, we, we did our homework, so to speak. So my husband, my late husband, Brady, he created lung rads, which is currently in use. This is the reporting system that is used to report out the exams. We first and foremost, you know, wanted to do screening well. And that was what we also were tasked to, to demonstrate to CMS in order to get it paid for. We had to show that um, lung, lung screening could be done with the highest quality out there. Um, Cause that was what, believe it or not, Hildy, that was being questioned when the NLST was halted. And then this was being reviewed by CMS to see whether or not they should pay for it basically was, was the decision that they needed to make. The group, the MedCAC, which is the group that actually advises CMS on whether or not to pay for a service, recommended that they don't pay for it because they they weren't questioning the results of the NLST, but they were questioning our ability as physicians to do it in community practice. And so we had to show what were the tools required to do this in community practice. Um, and we had to create those tools. So we created patient information. Um, so that we could do shared decision-making. At that time, there was no requirement for shared decision-making as, as there is now under the CMS um, NCD, National Coverage Determination. But we believed in shared decision-making even beforehand, just that patients need to know about their choices um, in healthcare and that that was a discussion that should take place with the help of a decision aid or a piece of information, a, a paper that could help them to answer the questions that they might have about the, the service. Um, so we created all of those tools and, and a database to track the patients to make sure we could get them back in if they were late for an exam or for a follow-up. Um, and, and when the organization saw that we were we did all of this, um, they backed us. Amazing. I just wanted to add for our listeners who don't know what, I always have this issue, <laughs> what I call out um, like problems with trigrams. So when people have, you know, three letters, it's like, what does that stand for? And in this case, CMS. Yeah. So we're talking about uh, Medicare uh, covering these uh, screening um, opportunities. And um, I just wanted to also say for upstage lung cancer, we're a member of a consortium of lung cancer advocate organizations across the United States, and it's called Lung Can. And this whole group got together and we, um, we wrote a letter to um, get coverage, um, you know, congressional coverage for, um, for these services. So I think it took a lot of a lot of brain power to figure this out in the first place, and then a lot of efforts to make that happen. So, Jacob, talk about your involvement. You are an oncologist, so you're dealing with patients in a broader perspective. So I'd love to hear more about, about what your thoughts and experiences are. Yeah, well, just to add to uh, what Andrea has said, you know, I'm I uh, finished fellowship and joined at Leahy months into the initiative that they had already started. And so really very early in my career benefited a lot from hearing from Andrea and Brady about lung screening and, and learning from what they'd done to implement and finding ways to try to help with that within that committee that was really in that initiative that was really being led by them. I also got the introduction to what was going on nationally uh, at that level. And of course, Andrea was very in, involved in that process as well. 
Uh, and so this this was really a very big movement that was happening already at the time when I uh, had come out of fellowship and joined uh, really to, to try to find ways to help them with within that lung screening program. And, you know, as I learned more about lung screening and I saw that this was really feasible within a center where we had more than 70% of people who qualified for screening getting scanned uh, and saw the number of diagnoses in stage one disease, um, you know, it really changes things. And as a medical oncologist, who would see people uh, who had metastatic disease. And of course, I still, as a medical oncologist, am treating patients with metastatic disease. And it's always particularly heartbreaking when these individuals qualified for lung screening, but just didn't know about it. Um, now, I have a number of patients too, who, who did get screened and actually had an early stage diagnosis. And in some cases, you know, these people get surgery and they don't even need any chemotherapy. They don't need anything further. And there's a very high likelihood of cure, which is to go back to your initial statement around Huntington's. You know, there can be a lot of debate about learning about whether or not you have a high likelihood of getting a diagnosis, particularly if there's not a lot to do about it, then there's a real debate to be had. But when you're talking about a high likelihood of being able to cure this diagnosis by catching it early. It just seems like there's no real debate to have. It just needs to happen. And so, you know, one of the things very early on is when this was being debated, actually Andrea and Brady were really beating the drum of saying, there is not a debate. People need to get screened. This is overwhelmingly increasing the likelihood of saving these people's lives. And, um, you know, and so I got to become a part of that chorus as I, as I learned more about it, I really got uh, quite passionate about myself. And this has continued to be lifelong work at this point going forward for me, because this is very clearly the most impactful thing that can be done for cancer mortality. I'm saying all cancer mortality, it's curing lung cancer, but what it does for lung cancer and increasing the likelihood of cure in just lung cancer goes beyond anything else that can be done related to cancer mortality. It is that big a deal. And so it's really important that people be given the opportunity to get these scans. We currently have guidelines that are approved. It's US Preventative Services Task Force recommended. It has been for a decade and it's covered by Medicare. It's covered by private insurers. There's not a copay. There's just not a great reason for this to not be done. But uh, there is a lot around implementation and program building that, frankly, is quite complicated uh, that that really Andrea and Brady navigated very early on in bringing the right people all together. And then that multidisciplinary committee, that was many others uh, that joined around Andrea and Brady that they that they'd brought in really ran a highly functioning program. And fortunately, there are other highly functioning programs as well, but uh, it is still not the majority of centers and there's a lot more work to do. And so I just wanted to underline uh, all of that. Um, As a medical oncologist, it's been really wonderful to see other medical oncologists really now uh, taking on the charge with this as well. Uh, for medical oncologists and radiation oncologists, like Andrea mentioned, you know, we, we see these patients when they're diagnosed. And so somebody with metastatic disease, you know, we're managing that case. And, and fortunately, we have some amazing new drugs that are really helping a lot with that. 
But unfortunately, the majority of people diagnosed with lung cancer that's metastatic, that's stage four, the majority of those individuals still die from lung cancer. And so by detecting it early, this is really our best way uh, of treating. And so a lot of times when I'm giving a talk on lung screening, I title it Finding the Cure because it really is that dramatic. A lung screening is finding the cure for the majority of people because you're catching it early enough that you can still cure the diagnosis. I've mentioned before on our podcast series, I had lung cancer 15 years ago. It was found totally by accident, um, which is on our Upstage Lung Cancer website. My silly story about the shoes that saved my life. I slipped and it started this whole ridiculous story that wound up with a diagnosis of lung cancer. But because it was by accident, it had nothing to do with anything other than slipping on a pair of shoes. I was, uh, I've, I, my lung cancer was found at stage 1A, which is very early, and that's all I needed was surgery. But 15 years ago, people would say, oh, all this screening or regular screening, that's a bad idea. You'll get false positives. And I was saying, I'd rather get some false positives and at least know what's going on for the most part. So, um, and I think during those 15 years also, the number of treatments have just, you know, skyrocketed for lung cancer because back then it did feel like it was pretty much a death sentence. It, it just, you know, it was like running into a wall. Um, so now there are more opportunities. And I think, you know, keeping people alive longer opens up other opportunities for new drugs to be developed and treatments um, to, to continue. But I, I, I was stunned with the 70%, if I understood this statistic correctly, 70% of people who were um, screened or got an opportunity to be screened, of, of the 100% of people who were offered that, 70% agreed to be screened, was that correct? Did I hear that right? Not quite. Go ahead, Andrea, you can explain. Yeah, fix that oh, statistic. Yeah. I was going to say, at, at Leahy, we, we estimate that 70% of the people who are at high risk for lung cancer within our population that we serve were screened. So as opposed to nationwide, the rate is closer to 3%, according to the American Lung Association report that goes out every year. And in Massachusetts, we're the, we're the best in the country. Um, at at 17%, a little bit less than 17% of eligible patients undergoing screening. And so there's a huge effort to get the the education and awareness and, and empowerment out to patients who are at high risk for lung cancer. So this is patients age 50 and over who have at least a 20-pack year history of tobacco use. So that means that they smoked one pack per day times 20 years or two packs per day times 10 years. Um, that's how you can uh, calculate whether or not your, what your pack years are. And so, uh, you know, it, and, and as I mentioned at Leahy, we, we find 85% stage one or two. Uh, and for a screen detected stage 1A lung cancer like what you had, yours wasn't screen detected, it was incidentally discovered. But for screen detected 1A lung cancer, we see a 90% five-year overall survival or 90% chance of being cured at five years out from that diagnosis, which is just incredible. And I think, um, you know, to your point, Hildy, the more survivors that we have, the greater the army of voices available to advocate for all aspects of lung cancer, just like what we saw with breast cancer. When we started screening for breast cancer, the same sort of thing happened where all of a sudden we have survivors who are out there going on walks and raising awareness and at, at the, at the, 
doors of their congressmen and 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 trying to really move the dial ahead. You need survivors to help deliver that message to to lawmakers and the people who are able to affect the change that we need to see. So one of the one of the things that's I, I that's a stunning statistic that I knew of, but I want our listeners to really take one moment and realize that with lung screening availability, only about three percent of the population is taking advantage of this. And so, what's getting in the way? I mean, what's getting in the way of people not going ahead and getting this and getting this screening done and helping to save lives? What are what are your either of you? Um, what are your thoughts about this? I just want to touch on one thing you said earlier about your story, where you said, you know, that was back when there wasn't some of the newer technology and this was a dire scenario. But I also want to point out you had the surgery and didn't need anything further. And we're saying that that likelihood still exists today. It is wonderful that there are new drugs and we're seeing real differences in outcomes of stage four disease. But in someone where you're detecting a stage one lung cancer, in many of those cases, they get surgery and then nothing further is needed. And there's still a high likelihood of cure. So I think one of the things that's out there is people talk about this as if somehow patients don't want this or there's just this great concern about finding out about such a terrible diagnosis. And what we're saying is, well, you're finding out about it when it's early enough that you get surgery and you're done. And, yeah. and therefore, there's a high likelihood of cure in that scenario. Now, some of this gets discussed as if it's patients deciding not to. And frankly, I think that's a bit of blaming the victim that we as a healthcare system are not consistently offering this to patients with a realistic discussion of what their risks are and their potential benefits. They're at a risk of having a nodule that gets worked up that's not a lung cancer, but far outweighing that is a likelihood of cure with, um, with just surgery or in some cases uh, something more but higher chance of cure. I really wanted to underscore also with you, Jacob, that that's, that that's correct. I mean, part of asking the question of what's getting in the way of, of, of the people who would benefit from the screening getting screened, it's not just that patients are uh, saying, oh, no, not me. Um, it's a much, it's more insidious and it's more uh, system-wide. So, yeah, Andrea, what were you going to say? Yeah, so I just want to say it didn't really help that, um, there was some erroneous information out from the get-go about the results of the lung screening trial that really took hold in the medical literature. And one of the things that at the Rescue Lung Society that we did was we, we tackled that issue, reaching out to medical journals, over 100 medical journals who had an incorrect statement about the false positive rate for lung cancer in their published in their journals and and asked them to issue errata so that we could get that number straight so and and I'm not talking about a small error the the risk of a finding a false positive for lung cancer in the first round of screening so this is the risk that you're told that you have a nodule that that doesn't turn out to be lung cancer is about 10% and it decreases to 5% once we have that baseline scan for future comparison. It was reported in the literature to be 97%. So almost 10 times off. I mean, it's, it, which you, which, I mean, I would never 
have a test that had a 97% false positive rate. So we knew as a medical community at the Rescue Lung Society, we had we just had to get that straight. We had to unfortunately call out the times that it was published incorrectly in order to get it right. Um, and that has now happened and we don't hear that anymore. We, you might still hear people say, oh, there's a high false positive rate. That's usually left over from that incorrect discussion because it's actually a, a lower false positive rate than what is seen in mammography. Um, so we've really worked hard to message that and get the information to patients that's correct so that they can make a decision based on the facts. So one of the barriers is um, uh, inaccurate information that goes to physicians or medical centers who have a point of view about doing this, but it's it's based on incorrect information. So how does how do you get correct information disseminated? What what is the process? Um, we're lucky in Boston, uh, not to be like East Coast arrogant, but you know we're, <laughs> we're lucky in Boston. We've got a lot of really high level um, medical centers in the Boston area, New England. Um, but across the country, um, in urban and in rural areas, in small towns, how does one, how, how that's, it feels like a gigantic, um, task. How, how does it happen? How, how, can, how can that be done in the best possible way? What needs to happen? Well, there's a lot to do. And, and just to point out, it, Massachusetts leads the country, but with an absolutely failing grade of 17, 18%. So it's not that lung screening is being done well here either. Right. Uh, in every state, it's failing. Now, there are a handful of centers that are really doing an exceptional job. And, and as you know, we've discussed, Leahy is, is screening a high percentage. Uh, and there are a few other centers that are really doing a good job at screening their populations. But there are also a lot of centers that are not screening people or are screening very few people. So just just to point out, I don't think we can celebrate Massachusetts uh, or Boston so much in that we're still uh, screening so few people who qualify. And, and it's a complicated process. You really need a multidisciplinary group. I mean, the model that Andrea and Brady brought together uh, I've seen work now at multiple centers where you have a multidisciplinary group that helps to sort out the challenges in each area of that workflow and comes together to find ways to to overcome those that there are certain things that i think are relevant across the country having a navigator for the program having a database for management of, of the data within that program and then there are very local things that within each within each, each institution they have to sort out within their own workflow absolutely totally agree jacob and i would also like to point out um you know the Rescue Lung Society. We have a, a meeting coming up. Jacob has been the one really organizing this in October, and he can speak to it. Um, so there's groups like like ours and yours, Hildy, who are necessary to get the message out. Jacob and I are both a national um, spokespeople for the American Lung Association, trying to get this word out. But what we really need, um, and the ALA has done a good job with some of their ad campaigns, Save by the Scan campaigns, we really need a, a national education campaign that goes beyond what has been done so far in order to get the word out and make sure that patients can advocate for themselves. They can go to their doctor and say, hey, I heard about this scan. And yeah. I think I'm eligible and I'd like to talk about it so that we're not relying it 
to come just on the heels of the medical professionals that um, the patients are able to ask about it themselves. Yeah, and to add to that, that so the uh, Rescue Lung Society conference is October 27th, 28th. And actually, Andrea Brundy kitts has really done the lion's share of, uh, of building out our program. And we're very excited about really having some exceptional speakers from around North America and Europe as well, uh, from uh, uh, both coasts in, in the U.S. and from Canada. Uh, so an exceptional group of speakers. It will be around how to build programs, how to optimize programs, as well as forward-looking in ways that we can enhance lung screening. We'll get updates from multiple countries as well as far as what's going on within each of those countries. I also wanted to just add, you know, there are, there are various organizations and GoTo Foundation is doing a lot around implementation, how best to implement. I mean, I think this is one of the forefronts that's really missing. We know when uh, there, there are good guidelines for who qualifies and they're covered without copay by private insurer, by Medicare, um, but how to implement the program is really the, the, the thing that I learned from Andrea and Brady and from working on that within Leahy and there are other centers that, that are doing that well, but we've highlighted how that's really missing uh, nationally. And so, you know, a hardworking primary care doctor learns about this and says, oh, I'm going to make sure everybody who qualifies for screening gets gets their scan. Um, they can't just start ordering scans and expect everything to work out within their institution as well. They really need a radiologist who's reading them by lung rads or some other uh, way of standardized way of reading. They need the nodule follow-up. They need a database to track who still needs scans and make sure that those are being done appropriately. So it's really not something that one individual within the healthcare system can do. Now, patients learning about it so that they can go to their primary care doctors and advocate for themselves is an extremely important part of this. Uh, but I, I just feel like within the healthcare system, we need to do better. And so that's, Andrea and I do a lot of pushing on others uh, within the healthcare system to try and help implement change and, and program building nationally. Now I hear that it's even more difficult than it sounds at, at the surface, which is not only does the PCP need to have, be able to order scans, but scans have to be done at a center or in, a, in an environment where they have top-notch people um, who are educated in this area and able to read these scans appropriately. So what are both of your thoughts about AI stepping in to um, help augment the accuracy of reading these scans? AI being artificial intelligence, because I can't stand initials for things. So, I mean, I do think that that AI will play a role as it does in breast screening to assist the radiologist. Um, but there, there's, there still is just a lot of human knowledge and um, information processing that that. It, that can't just be simulated by an AI in terms of using um, the LungRad system in terms of um, the, the multidisciplinary, beyond the actual scan itself, what comes next? You know, or do we go to a biopsy? Are we going to do a PET scan? What, you know, what is the next step? Um, that's why um, we really encourage, we, we, when we started the program, if a patient has a suspicious finding, which is only 4% of those going through the program have a suspicious finding, and half of those people actually have lung cancer, but anybody with a suspicious finding, which is a category four lung rads exam, is automatically referred to a pulmonologist, because that that point, you have about a 50 plus percent chance of having lung cancer. 
And so you need a specialist to, to get involved, who a specialist of the lungs, who knows the entire kind of lay of the land, can take a history, can look at all of the other medical aspects of the patient, including pulmonary function testing, and make a, determinist to, a determination as to what is the next best step for the patient. Um, so as opposed to some programs, they actually just recommend out of radiology a category for what to do next. And, um, and, and we don't, we don't really endorse that, or we did not really endorse that, um, as the best method of working up these patients because, um, these patients haven't had a history and a physical by a, a pulmonary specialist at that point. And, um, and they, the, the statistics show that they have a high likelihood of actually having lung cancer and they really should see a specialist at that. So point. how would you decide if that were the case and somebody has some evidence of advanced lung cancer, um, how would you decide whether or not to see a pulmonologist or a thoracic oncologist? Well, I mean, I'll, and I'll let Jacob answer this too. A, a thoracic oncologist is not going to be the one to actually do the procedure. Um, the, a, a thoracic oncologist, meaning a medical oncologist, you maybe you met a thoracic surgeon, um, a, a pulmonologist or a thoracic surgeon, both are good people to refer to once we've found that 4% of people who are, are, are suspicious for lung cancer. Now, remember, you know, with the use of lung rads, that means 96% of patients are just are just kept in radiology and, and with their primary care physician. They're never going outside of that, um, that, that you system. Know, yeah. This ever, they're, they're never having what we call care isolation. Um, and that was one of the reasons that was one of the reasons we designed lung rads was so that we would have this way of triaging patients according to their risk of uh, actually having lung cancer once they had the scan. Because 2% of these patients who go through the program do have lung cancer, they just don't know it yet. And they develop lung cancer at a rate of one to 2% per year once they've been in the program. And that's the, that's the ideal, right? The best is when we find lung cancer between scans. So somebody, you know, didn't have it one year or, or, or three years in a row, they didn't have lung cancer and they come back for their next scan and they have lung cancer. We've found that lung cancer within a 12 month window. And those are very early stage, typically highly curable lung cancers. They're non-small cell lung cancers, which the majority are. So there's just a lot of positives that have come from this conversation about as a patient being able to advocate um, and ask questions about whether they're appropriate for being screened. It's a lot of positives for um, physicians to take that, um, that effort to um, explain what this can do for their patients and to develop a, a team, as you were saying. Um, can you tell our listeners a website that they might go to to learn more about the Rescue Lung? Yeah, thank you. RescueLung.org is the website rescuelung.org and at that website you'll be able to see our conference agenda and some of the details and, and of course register the conference is going to be in boston october 27th 28th as mentioned at the the first half day is going to really be particularly around program building and then uh, as the conference goes on we'll get updates from around the globe we'll get forward-looking stuff so your question about ai and of course the other part of that is biomarkers you know these types of tech technologies, I think, have uh, real opportunity to enhance our screening. But I also think it's really important that we don't 
look for these to just do regular screening. You know, a six millimeter nodule is a positive scan. And that's something that sticks out very obviously to radiologists that read these scans. So we don't need AI to detect these lung cancers. They are obvious by the time they're a positive scan uh, and still quite small. You know, that's like around a fourth of an inch in size. So these are still quite small, still very early stage and totally detectable with the human eye. But things like indeterminate pulmonary nodules are where, where we have real opportunity. And we'll get into some of the nuances of these exciting new technologies. I just want to stress, though, that screening itself, we have all the tools right now. It's just a matter of having the multidisciplinary group, having the organizing of that group and of the system within all the tools that we have. Um, we don't need to add any cost to being able to do screening effectively. It's really individuals and just program management type things. Well, I want to thank both of you for this amazing conversation. I've certainly learned a lot. I hope uh, that anyone listening, uh, whether they're um, of the, in the general public or if you're in the lung cancer community or you're a radiologist yourself, um, we have a lot of connections to uh, radiologists throughout the country. and. Um, you know, I hope people will take this information and digest it because this will save lives. So I just want to thank you, Andrea, so much. And Jacob, as always, um, thank you. Jordan, the best always. <laughs> so um, we'll see all of you next time. But thank you for tuning in today. To find out how you can join Upstage Lung Cancer in raising awareness and funding to beat lung cancer, visit our website, upstagelungcancer.org. We invite you to subscribe and download our podcast available on all platforms. And we love reviews and ratings. After all, we're showbiz people. There's more entertainment and inspiration to come on the next podcast episode of Backstage at Upstage. <laughs>